so many people don't pay attention to the sound that they are exposing themselves to. Oh, yeah. And like whenever you go to a, a, let's say, a large restaurant, high action, high volume, and you have to yell at the person next to you and you have to yell at your order to the server. And then finally, whenever you walk outside of the restaurant and you're finished, grab hold of yourself. You feel better because all that noise is gone. But you're thinking, oh, I just came out of the restaurant, so the food must have been good. We must have had a good time. (laughs) Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. Here's the first part of my interview with Alan R. Brenton. My next guest is the founder of Cymatrax Incorporated. He's been immersed in music for a long time and owned and operated Allegro Data Systems, a company that archived magnetic tape recordings and remastered recordings for clients such as Southern Methodist University and Scripps Institute of Oceanography. His diverse background also includes producing a television program, being a restaurant consultant, and business administration. Now he studies epigenetics, consciousness, and quantum physics, and is focused on sound and the use of cymatics. He's developed a software application to reduce stress in people's lives and raise the human potential. His name is Alan R. Brunton, and I'm pretty sure this discussion will take a lot of interesting twists and turns you won't want to miss. As always, if you have questions for my guest, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. And if you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com where you'll find a lot of ways to get in touch. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available. And if you'd consider it, I'd love to hear what you think of the podcast. You can leave a review that I'd love to feature on future podcasts, either in written or in voice format, from the podcast's main page. And now, here's my interview with Alan R. Brunton. Thanks for being with me, Alan. I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. <laughs> well, it's it's Lots my sincere on. pleasure to be here and, uh, and get to know more about you and all the fantastic work that you're doing and being able to share what I've created with the world as well. Yeah, well, likewise, I appreciate it. Uh, I usually start out these interviews with the same question because I find I get some really interesting stories and I would love to hear yours about it. So do you have an early memory of how sound moved you? Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, in fact, I, I even wrote a um, a Reader's Digest story about this. And uh, um, it was when I was five years old and... Um, I'm 66 years old right now, so a long time ago. Uh, my father had an old wire spool recorder. This was before tape. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but he was making sounds with it. My grandmother had come to visit, and and um, they called me into the living room when they were sitting around and said, Alan, sing a song for your grandmother. And I went, Okay, what do you want me to sing? Is it well? You just learned the song. Let me call you sweetheart, and let me tell you that really sent me back into a flashback at the age of five years old. Two weeks before, I had my mother's aunts coming to visit, and they were like Marge Simpson's older aunts, large and smoking, and oh my gosh, and they chased me around the room and 
hugged me and just covered me with 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 their arms and they were very large women so i had cleavage all around my neck and just and I, they were kissing on me and i was like ah and so whenever my grandmother wanted me to sing let me call you sweetheart i thought that maybe she was going to do the same thing so i said no i'm not going to sing i'm not uh -uh. so needless to say that uh, she said alan if you sing for me i will buy you a coloring book and so I went, oh gosh, now here's a dilemma. Because in kindergarten, I was the best at coloring. And I had my stuff taken out of the book and put onto the walls. And, and But I only had like two or three pages left to color. And we had two more weeks left in school. And my parents weren't going to buy me a, a new coloring book. So I'm, I'm having to weigh this out. Now then, to, what am I going to do? Coloring book cleavage coloring book cleavage you know and then so i i just went okay no i'm not going to and so they went on and and uh did their thing and i, I got sent to my room well all during that time from when i was five years old going through school going through college and used to and i my degree uh, studies were all in uh, applied vocal music i wanted to be a professional opera singer because i was doing so well singing and I got finished singing one day, Christmas Eve, and I, I think I gave like four performances, different venues, and I went back home for Christmas. Um, trying to think how old I was. I think I was uh, 30, maybe 30 years old at the time. And everybody tried to get me to sing some Christmas carols. And I went, oh my gosh, that's what I do for a living. Come on. So they said, Alan, your grandmother has never heard you sing. And sh this may be her last Christmas. So just sing something. I went, okay. So I went and said, what do you want me to sing? And she said, well, I want to hear, let me, uh, no, she didn't say that. She said, I want to hear Amazing Grace, which was like, oh my gosh. And my father had just died the month before. And I sang amazing grace for him when he was in hospice and so i went okay i'll i'll sing it so i sang two verses of amazing grace for her and one of her great grandchildren was on the side and said go underneath the christmas tree and get that green package and she brought it back she goes i've been waiting to give this to you for a long time and i opened it up and it was two coloring books oh it's so perfect <laughs> From when I was five years old, she had bought them and carried them with her all at the time that she came to visit. And she never heard me sing up until that Christmas day. And so, yeah, that's my biggest memory of sound. And, and because I, it, I just got engulfed in it because I had to continue to sing. Wow. Yeah. And, and love, too, because your grandmother carried those around for so long. Wow. That's that's really moving. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, so going on from there, how did you get interested in sound and music to begin with? Was your family musical? You got into opera singing, you said, right? Yeah, none of my family was musical. I mean, my mother uh, made my two older brothers and myself take piano lessons um, because our piano teacher was right across the street from us. But uh, no, I was the only one that actually went into music because um, I was actually looking for a challenge, uh, something that was going to 
uh, really challenge what I was doing. I, I had an easy time uh, going through school. In fact, I got a little bit bored at that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, no, I, I, I just decided that, um, you know, I, I needed to challenge myself to, to look at and do the, the, the hardest thing that had to do with music. Now, to back up just a little bit more, my, the way I was raised, my father was an electrochemical engineer. He was an inventor as well. And he used technology of Nikola Tesla so successfully that our federal government shut him down three different times. And that was in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Uh, so I was actually raised in an out-of-the-box thinking environment. Um, I would go out and watch him or go out to his workshop when he was working. And I was bored, wanted to, to look at something. And I would see like something from my mother's kitchen on his workshop that had been totally disassembled. And he had taken a piece out of it and was using it in one of his inventions. And I would ask, does mom know you have that? And he said, don't tell her. She wasn't using it anyway. I bought it for her for Christmas three years ago, and I think she used it twice. It's been sitting under the sink. So that's the way I was raised into, okay, this was made for that, but how else can you use it? And that's the way that I, I have been almost all of my life. I, I see how people are using one thing. I, I say, okay, well, how can I take what they're using and apply it to some other way? And that's what I have been doing with, with sound and frequency over these past, oh gosh, I, I think I really started looking into this around, uh, I guess it started at 2009. So, you know, we're looking at 13 years ago that I started looking at how clinical trial data was coming in and specific frequencies was moving matter. And, and that is in an expression called uh, cymatics half of the name of my company, Cymatrax. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio dash branding dash strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list, just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website. And I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up, though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests, and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now, back to the podcast. So what are the benefits of this for human beings? Out of curiosity, just because I know that you're developing this and you've been doing it for a while and you have that your company, Cymatrax, so you've been working on this. What what benefits does this have for people? Well, the... The clinical trial data that I have put together was from Johns Hopkins, the Mayo Clinic, Harvard School of Medicine, MIT, and the Oxford Neurological Research Institute. Now, they have, in the past, identified specific frequencies that, when placed with electrodes across the brain, will shows raised cognitive ability. 
And then also within all digital audio inherently is white noise. And so I just asked the question, okay, so we know that certain frequencies will rain your, your brain's ability to work better. And there's white noise in digital audio that puts you to sleep. Where is the software that will analyze, find where those good frequencies are, lock onto them, and then reduce the volume of the white noise that it's in that file so that I can have better focused attention and more energy with, without getting um, taken away by you know it, it, other di distractions. And I was told, well, that's never been done. And I went, okay, I'll do that. You're your father's son. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. That's a great idea. And there's an old Cat Stevens song, uh, you know, father and son. And uh, he did not want me to be an opera singer. Oh, my gosh. He was not not happy about that. But I'm sure he's looking down from from the pearly gates right now and, and is proud of me because the software that I did develop um, also got patented and he owned several patents himself. So, yeah, I followed in my father's footsteps. Congratulations. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about the applications of this technology? Who would use it and what for do you think? Well, there's so many different applications. Number one, um, you have to understand there's also another way of understanding the science of, um, of understanding uh, genetics in a different view, and that's called epigenetics. And we understand in epigenetics that every single cell has receptors, and those receptors are influenced by four environmental influences, chemical, heat, light, and sound. And so many people don't pay attention to the sound that they are exposing themselves to. Oh, yeah. And like whenever you go to a, a, let's say, a large restaurant, high action, high volume, and you have to yell at the person next to you and you have to yell at your order to the server. And then finally, whenever you walk outside of the restaurant and you're finished, you grab hold of yourself. You feel better because all that noise is gone. But you're thinking, oh, I just came out of the restaurant, so the food must have been good. We must have had a good time. <laughs> yeah. But, but people don't realize their whole body is vibrating. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's whenever you go to, let's say, a concert and you walk out of the venue and you're going to your car, well, you can feel your, your whole body is vibrating. But we've gone on to the microscopic level of that to understand that that we can actually take um, and, well, we found a way to be able to condense the, the center of, of distribution of neurotransmitters through the brain by using these specific frequencies. And whenever that happens, then inside of the, the veins that go then to the brain, um, collecting on the inside walls are amyloid proteins. And those proteins actually are kind of mucky and, and sticky. And as neurotransmitters pass through there, a lot of those signals get stuck on those proteins. And so they dissipate their energy. So just thinking, okay, well, it's logical then if they're taking away the signal, then the optimized signal is actually not getting to the brain efficiently. So how do we fix that? Well, that's exactly what we're doing. 
by as the neurotransmitters are passing then from the synapse then to the dendrite to travel along the axons, we condense them into a more uh, dense area within the center, so they'll travel much more efficiently through the central nervous system, through the brain to be able to give a better signal. And then we just reduce all the other noise pollution so that without changing the quality of the recording, the user has more energy, less stress, and a higher cognitive focus. So when I first came up with this, a dear friend of mine is the leading pediatric neurologist at the largest children's hospital in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I just wanted to get some kudos from her saying like, yes, this can be used as a stress reliever. But she came to me and said, Alan, I get it exactly what you're talking about. I just read clinical trials there are specific frequencies that can be used to help in therapy for autistic children. So I went, wow, okay. And to, to bypass a lot of the footwork and legwork that I've done over the past years into the understanding of how to use this in healthcare, we just got finished receiving preliminary reports from the Department of Communication Science and Disease from James Madison University showing the benefit of using our technology for the treatment of PTSD and autism. So we're also then doing more joint applications with uh, the University of New England and uh, where their research, or their head of research there is going to be helping us with so many more um, grant proposals and submissions so that we can actually do clinical trials using our technology for autism and probably PTSD. Wow, that's really impressive. So you're saying what it does is it just gets a clearer signal to the brain. It calms people down. Is that the idea? Yeah, that it's the way that I explain it to neurologists and they look at me like, you're not a neurologist. <laughs> I made it very simple for them. I just said, okay, so the brain is much more capable and competent than what we give it credit for. We, it does not recognize white noise as those two words, white noise. It actually identifies each and every individual frequency that is within white noise, which is millions of frequencies. That's like 432, 433, 434. Concert A that everybody tunes to, all musical organizations, usually, well, most of them, will tune at 440 hertz. And we have identified several other frequencies that we highlight within our software, but one of those is 432. Now, if you play 440 hertz and 432, most people cannot tell the difference. They will not, unless you are a, a trained musician or uh, you know somebody that is really heavily involved with the recording industry, and they'll be able to tell that. So whenever you're talking about all of those frequencies together, that's the reason why it sounds like rushing water. Because you've got so many things together. Now, the brain identifies each and every digital signal, not just the way it sounds, but it is identifying that. So that's millions of frequencies. And like any computer, when you're operating three or four major programs or much less even the, the subconscious programs, everything's fine until you upload huge amounts of data. And that's exactly what is in digital audio with all of these white noise characteristics. 
it slows everything down. I mean, it's, I've got clinical trial reports showing that white noise slows down your respiratory, slows down your heart rate, slows down the glands in your body from producing essential chemicals. I mean, it, 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 that's just what it does. So if you can reduce the volume, or let's just say take your foot off of the gas of those noise-polluting frequencies, but keep those optimized ones highlighted, with and, and, a, and a certain percentage in the filtration system that we have patented, then it will actually give more focused attention, more energy to the listener. It, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you know of people that, that make large and long podcasts. They're like up to an hour at a time. Well, so many people listening lose their focus after 15 to 20 minutes. That's a very good point. Yeah. And well, look at TED Talks. Not one goes over 20 minutes. Interesting. There you go. They don't want White people noise. to lose their focus. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating, the study of all of this. I know that we're all dealing with a lot of stuff these days, so I particularly wanted to acknowledge those that have taken the time to leave honest reviews of this podcast, like Elaine Grant, who called the show insightful, practical, eye-opening. As a veteran public radio producer and host, she says, and now an entrepreneur running a podcast consultancy, I thought I knew about the world of audio. Truth is, I knew just a small slice of this big and important world. I've learned so much from every episode. I need to re-listen and furiously take notes. I can't recommend audio branding highly enough. Thank you for taking the time to leave your comment, Elaine. It means so much to me. And now, back to the show. And you decided to make a company that does all this, that sort of cleans up the audio. So how would people access that at this point? Yeah, you can go right now. It, it's it's up on the website. Anybody can go there. Uh, and what we, we have there uh, to monetize our technology is what we call a uh, uh, our retail uh, outlet. Anybody can go and create an account and upload a digital audio file. Uh, we charge a dollar per minute. So if you're uploading a four minute, 19 second MP3, we will charge $4.19 for somebody to upload the file. That length takes about five to seven seconds to do its thing. And then it'll spit out a new file that's been cleaned and people can download that and use it. However, what we have done over the past couple of years is found the low hanging fruit, the individual user, the B2C market, is really pretty accepting on this. And so we've already done over 250 podcasts for people. Um, and it, it, it's, but we're trying then to go, okay, that has taken a long time and we've shown general acceptance. Now let's go to B2B. Let's go to the business market itself. And so we took another step. And so we're looking to get then or we have been getting into education, online education and in the private sector. Our largest client right now is an ongoing, um, let's see, it's Elite CEU, Continuing Education University. They have taken over 3,000 digital audio files, run it through a custom portal, and then put those audio files back into their training videos so that whenever somebody is watching the training video, they need to renew their, their professional license. They're able then to retain that information and when it comes time for testing 
their test scores are higher, and they retain that information out into the workplace longer. Wonderful. Yeah. So they've actually had some uh, studies on this, like they've seen people increase their learning. Yeah, we're, we're doing that right now. Like I said, Elite CEU is down out, right outside of Austin, Texas. And so we're getting that data from them. Um, but the, like I said, the continued education or, or the, the ability to identify our technology through the James Madison University trial it just parallels the same thing. Yeah. This time they did it, let's say, on a... Uh, uh, clinical trial protocols so that every single participant in that was able to have the same understanding, age group, uh, what they were eating, same headphones, same computer, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to uh, define just that every single person was going through the same experience. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That's really impressive. So hopefully there's more data to come. <laughs> There's a lot more data. Like I said, the University of New England has offered 30 to 40 of their medical students to work with JMU to continue this operation. Uh, and we will do a randomized social trial, which actually is available to anybody who goes to Simatrax.com. We do have those two tabs, one create an account and the other is take the challenge. And there we have three different songs, rock and roll, classical music, and spoken word presented two different ways. And that trial uh, we're doing then as a randomized social trial with the University of New England. Once we get just 55% positive response from those students identifying uh, our technology, um, then we can send that to the head of neurobiology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Dr. Craig Powell, who said, yeah, I, I would love to be able to um, oversee the clinical trials for autism using this. I mean, on our website, that take the challenge, we're already getting 74%. So 55% positive results on this is no problem. And uh, so he would sign off on it, submit it to Autism Speaks, and they would fund us one to three million dollars so that we continue can continue using the technology then for autism. Other neurologists have said, well, if it does work for autism, then it should then work for PTSD, ADHD, stroke, dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. We're just here to change the world. That's all. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. <laughs> But I love that sound changes the world because it really does. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time. <laughs>